This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, the podcast that is R-rated, but with plausible deniability. HMOD is a barely legal show about sex, culture, politics, and legal regulation, hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and produced by David Slavic. On this episode, I speak to Florence Ashley and Daniel Karasik. I've called it The Future is Queer, and I hope you enjoy it. Florence Ashley is a trans-feminine activist and scholar based at the Faculty of Law at McGill University in Montreal. Her work focuses on bioethics and transgender healthcare. Florence is on the advisory board of the Trans Legal Clinic and is a member of the Comité Trans of the Conseil Québécois LGBT. They are the recipient of the 2019 Canadian Bar Association's LGBTT Hero Award, and next year they'll begin work as the first openly trans law clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada. Florence and I discuss trans feminism and the law, activism in left spaces, playfulness and femininity, how Me Too depoliticizes the public space, and how to constructively contest norms of respectability, professionalism, and civility. Here's my interview with Florence Ashley. Uh, So first of all, a huge, huge thank you. We've got caffeine here, so I think we're ready to go. Um, I want to have a a wide-ranging discussion um, with Florence Ashley about... Uh, their legal and also social activism and also just opinions on all manner of things involving law, sex, and culture. And so uh, so I'm wondering if you could just tell those who are listening who may not be familiar with your work, sort of what your background is in terms of an activist, but also in terms of your more scholarly uh, work and goals as well. Yeah, I mean, so I did my... Uh, my law at McGill and now I'm doing a master's in law at McGill and I'm also doing the program with a specialization in bioethics which involves taking a lot of class in the biomedical ethics unit at McGill so I publish in both law and in bioethics and a little bit various different things I'm not very good at like staying on topic and I think I'm anyway like all (laughs) topics are connected so uh, so I work a little bit on everything I've worked on um so I've had stuff come out on like hate crime laws. I'm also doing stuff on um, therapeutic ethics for trans youth, uh, bans on conversion therapy in law, um, stuff on like uh, what I call um, uh, transgender history, non-disclosure um, criminalization, which is when uh, you have trans people who are charged for sexual assault for not disclosing the fact that we're trans to um to a sexual partner. Uh, so I'm, I'm really working on a lot of different things that all end up, you know, being around the, the like, issues faced by trans people, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit then, perhaps, uh, about the hate speech uh, laws that operates in Canada and sort of your recent scholarly intervention on that topic. And so just shortly before the sort of Me Too era started, actually, uh, we had the addition to the Criminal Code of Canada of um, gender and gender expression uh, added uh, to our hate crimes provision. And so it's now prohibited. And women were also added at the same time. So it's a prohibited 
uh, a prohibited a new prohibited grounds um, in our hate speech legislation. And you wrote a paper that um, we read for class, but I'll just um, read just a couple of words from it, if you don't mind, because sure. I thought it was so nicely phrased. Um, but you worry about focusing on the criminal law, in particular, as it ha- uh, pertains to regulating hate speech against trans people um, for a number of reasons. But uh, but you say that these laws are, quote, a poison gift which fails to alter the material conditions under which trans people live. Worse, they readily create perceptual barriers to further trans emancipation by protecting the minority of trans people who can readily access legal and criminal institutions, only metaphorically extending this protection in the social imaginary to all trans people by drawing on the symbolic power a formal equality and the rule of law in day-to-day life; those laws fail to protect most trans people, and I just thought that was a really uh, insightful critique. That this is, seems to be another area where progressives think that uh, enacting uh, new, more inclusive criminal legislation will actually help further the sort of goals of social justice um, and, mm-hmm. in fact, access to justice that constituencies like trans people are actually seeking today. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a big issue with the federal government, particularly, is like there's a lot of focus on formal equality. And I think there's there's a certain interesting irony to it because at the same time that C um, C sixteen was being passed, the federal government through uh, PHAC defunded one of the big um, grassroots organize like trans organizations in Quebec and you know it, that was a couple of years ago so now they've found other uh, they've managed to find other sources of funding in part because um, of work like uh, i mean the people at aztec but also uh, me who with uh, james mckay from aztec went and talked to randy boisson about it during the uh, the pride national um, conference uh, back in 2017 and you know and also continuing to send emails and stuff and eventually you know um m- funding was was found but there's i think it like captures the issue with the government where they can promote themselves as pro-trans by passing this law which will have relatively little impact on trans people for a wide variety of reasons including the fact that like i mean if you're not if you're not scared by the you know if you're gonna commit murder and and rest 25 years in prison doesn't like is like adding a hate crime like aspect Mm -hmm. to it really gonna like Mm -hmm. dissuade you anymore uh also it's not like people read the criminal code uh and and then also the fact like for instance on hate speech like you need to have the attorney general's permission to Mm -hmm. um to um, do anything regarding like uh, public incitement of hatred and stuff like that so uh so those laws have very limited impact in terms of the uh, the criminal law, but it looks good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the government turns around and then like defunds the organization, mm-hmm. and you, which you know, arguably has such a big impact on like the real lived um, experiences of trans people, because it's like like this is a, an organization that like tends to trans sex workers and drug users that looks after their health that will uh, go that will have like people who go and like meet with the trans people to like, help them who provides a space who provides support mm-hmm. uh, it's really a super important place for trans people and 
but the government will prioritize formal equality over this kind of more material mm-hmm. equality. Now, this isn't to say that there's no material uh, conditions that aren't that are going to be altered by the government's work, but that generally not necessarily something that will look uh, at through the criminal lens. Like often, government action is going to be through. Um, to a wide array of policy that impacts people's life through um, administrative structures. So I'm thinking about like, um, you know, like prison housing policies and stuff like that, which are, which are also admittedly very like still limited and don't address the fact that prisons are inherently violent mm-hmm. institutions and we need to work towards uh, abolishing them, which is, you know, also mm-hmm. something that's at, been a, at, the, at the center of uh, critical trans politics mm-hmm. with like Dean Spade doing that work in in the U.S. a lot and, and you know, a bunch of other important uh, people. And there's a lot of uh, abolitionist uh, strands in trans activist, uh, activism. But, you know, saying we need to allow changes to gender markers or we need to have mm-hmm. a new... Um, a new inclusive policy for uh, for prisons and we need to have new policies for like identification for like traveling and stuff like that that's already much more um, material and substantial than mm-hmm. uh, than the hate crime provisions that uh, hardly you know don't get applied all that much and also like let's face it it still remains within the discretion of um, of the judges and the judges already give like smaller sentences to people who like um who are attacking trans people mm. so you know like they're not even they're not even enforcing the the sanctions to the full extent as is and i'm not sure that if they did it would change anything right right so would it be fair to say that all the focus and uh, both on the sort of asserted emancipatory potential of the changes that were contained in C16, but then also uh, what we've seen is this huge conservative reactionary backlash. And so Jordan Peterson obviously comes Mm -hmm. up as the sort of prime figure here being worried about pronoun usage and being, I know we're laughing, I mean, being forced to use words he doesn't want to use. I mean, but I, it seems to me that the, the focus on things like pronouns, or as you, as you mentioned, right, gender designations, gender changing the law around gender markers, and then also even these criminal laws around hate speech sort of focus on these more symbolic aspects that really Mm -hmm. don't pertain to what might be the most pressing real life you know, from the ground up needs and concerns of, of trans people across the country. Does that make sense to you? I mean, yes, I, I do think um, gender markers are maybe in like slightly different category in uh-huh. terms of, uh, of because it does, um, it does condition access to spaces. And um, also uh, whether, you know, people know that you're trans, which is a precondition for discrimination because a big part of it is like, well, you want to avoid discrimination in the first place. Like, because once it happens, it's too late. No one has the money to go to court and uh, like human rights commissions are notoriously ineffective and very long to go through. So, so there's a lot of, uh, so there's a lot of issues with that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something a little bit uh, worrisome about, like, the the tendency to go for a bill like C-16 and stuff like that and not necessarily, like, put the money where it's at, which is, you know, like, give us money, give us... Like, we want... I think at the end of the day, like, economic inequality is one of the big issues with, like, trans people because, like... um, If your employer discriminates against you but you have money, your employer is less 
likely to discriminate against you because they're going to be scared that you're going to sue. Because mm-hmm. uh, the people who can sue are those who have money. And, uh, and you know, if you're in, you know, this, like, really uh, big shot employment, um, I mean, you're less likely to uh, face discrimination for a wide number of reasons. One of them is, well, your employer is much more likely to know the law. They're also much more likely to want to apply it because they're going to be afraid of it. And they probably have legal counsel and stuff like that and afraid of lawsuits. And also, if you have more money and if it's more money, there's a there's a big enough um, financial benefit to a lawsuit and also an ability to engage in a lawsuit mm-hmm. that uh, will like, kind of like um, scare them straight, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, which is not a case for the 50% of trans people who make under like $15,000 a year in Ontario. It's an incredible statistic. Um, yeah. I mean, it's getting a little bit dated because it was it, it's 2010, uh-huh. but, you know, the poverty rates are still uh, very, very worrisome. Right. So, you know, that law is not going to help those people. No, absolutely, absolutely. And so I want—I know that this is an almost unanswerable question, but I want to put it out there anyway because I know it's important to you to sort of think about how we can reframe or rejig the discourse around uh, formal equality towards something more like an anti-capitalist approach to equality, not just for trans people, but of course for trans people, mm-hmm. but other marginalized groups as well. I mean, I think just saying that already reframes it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, once we're saying that the issue is, you know, structures of uh, of oppression that includes, you know, at the at the heart of it, um, capitalism, but also stuff like, you know, like transphobia, sexism, racism, uh, and you know, all uh, all interested like a, a wide array of intersecting grounds of repression that mm-hmm. all are mutually supportive um we need to once we do that reframing we see the need for like broader for broader um, changes and then our activism becomes a sort of um i mean i think it's useful to think of at least i like to think my activism in terms of uh, harm reduction mm-hmm. um because you know that I think like there's something inherent in the the frame of harm reduction where we're just we're, we don't think that this is going to be a solution to the problem. We just think that look, we're trying to have people survive mm-hmm. while also working on uh, addressing the underlying issues, and that's mm-hmm. like that that's where I think what's the right um, the right angle and perspective to take on you know working on trans issues and stuff like that because. When you put it that way, then you keep in mind the fact that um, this isn't going to be a, a, an NLB all. And one of the things we see with is uh, in terms of like, well, some, a lot of people are arguing for like adding X gender marker to birth certificates. And it, it is something I support. Yet at the same time, I like many uh, other trans activists think that the, like, the real, like the real thing we want is no gender marker on any birth certificate. Right. Uh, and and arguing for this X is just this kind of thing we do while also advocating against uh, against having gender markers at all. So it becomes a political reality uh, because we do think that like an X is better than a current situation, uh-huh. but it's not going to be enough. Right. Uh, so so I think I think it's all a work of like keeping in mind what where where we're headed, what we want, um, and not think that. Each step that we take is uh, 
what we want as a final solution. And we should also always think of the steps that we take in relationship to what we eventually want to do, else we risk falling into a neoliberal politics of recognition, mm -hmm. which is not something that we want, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't to say that we shouldn't seek recognition. It's more that um, recognition shouldn't be the sole or the end goal. Mm -hmm. It can be an intermediary goal, mm -hmm. but that also requires us to think of a further goal. Right. That's just so important, I think, because oftentimes uh, broadly left anti-capitalist movements are criticized for being somehow utopian or impossible, you know, the, the dream that's impossible to realize. And it seems to me like your, the approach you've just articulated is just infinitely more manageable and more pragmatic, both from a strategy and tactics point of view. And just, you know, recognizing that, yeah, this neoliberal politics of recognition is just uh, really substanceless <laughs> and mm -hmm. is actually can only ever mean anything maybe if it's a tactical step along the way to to mm -hmm. a, a different sort of social project mm -hmm. i thought that was just beautifully phrased um can i turn a little bit and talk to you about the way you uh engage social media and the public space as part of your activist project? Yeah, I mean, I'm present on social media. I mean, I've, I used to be on Instagram as well, but now I'm like, you know, posting my pictures on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's <laughs> a lot. Plus sending the pictures to like all the cute people I, <laughs> that I hold dear to my heart. Like that's, that's a lot. So I've decided to, you know, hold back. Now I'm just, I just do Facebook and Twitter. Um, I think I'm increasingly present on Twitter and, you know, it's interesting because sometimes like, you know, I can make silly claims on, on Twitter that really um, exemplify my way of thinking about, um, about like real issues and how I bring my um, silliness into a serious academic work. And I'm just thinking about like this morning when yeah. uh, University of Toronto Law uh, retweeted um, a tweet, uh, a reply tweet that I um, I replied to uh, a tweet by uh, Robert Leckie, who uh, was talking about a new an article that was coming out about um, about the idea and privacy of um, if you're if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. Mm -hmm. And I made a very uh, like a little bit of a silly quip, which was, well, you know, like are the people who say who say that uh, like I wonder if they poop with the door open <laughs> because. I mean, it's true, like, just because you have nothing to hide doesn't mean that there, there aren't things that are deeply uncomfortable and feel like they impede on your uh, on your personal space and your privacy. Uh, you know, I don't, like, like I don't want anyone to, uh, to hear me poop, and I don't want anyone in the room with me while I'm pooping, and it's not because I think I'm doing anything wrong. And it's not like I have anything to really fear, but there's still, there, there's still this kind of, like, weird encroachment, and also, like... Uh, a potential for very, like very uncomfortable situations and for uh, all sorts of um, of like undesirable outcomes. And I was also thinking that in terms of like stuff like um, texting and partners and flirting and stuff like mm -hmm. that, being like polyamorous. Like I'm obviously very open about the fact that I like flirt with multiple people and have multiple partners and stuff like that. And yet I don't necessarily want different partners to like read over my shoulder what I'm, what I'm writing, mm -hmm. not because I'm hiding anything or not because I'm 
uh, uncomfortable with them knowing the content, but just because it there's it just feels like a private space, and I don't necessarily want someone who like impede into that space. And I think mm-hmm. like the and and I think we a lot of us have that kind of um, have that kind of intuition that we want to control access to those spaces. And that has nothing necessarily to do with having something to hide. Uh, but the problems with the surveillance state were, yeah. were increasingly, uh, <clears throat> were increasingly, well, being watched but from everywhere. But, you know, that, and, but that was just like a, a silly little tweet and it's a funny idea. And yet at the same time, it's a serious point about how we view our lives and view, uh, view our own privacy and, um, and, and some, privacy narratives and and also how we're how some defenses of um of uh, violations of our privacy are very are not consistent with the way we see the world and the way we in we act um and so but like that's that's social media stuff and you know like just much as i bring this like I bring my academic work to social media. I bring my you know personal, including social media life, into my work because like, well, I mean, first of all, as soon as someone starts reading an article by me, they're gonna know, they're gonna know that um, that I'm trans. They're gonna know that it's me if they know anything about the field. I mean, look, my very first, my very very first article, uh, I learned after that period and publication and everything, I learned that um, the one of the reviewers had recognized me from the writing mm-hmm. based on very little information being given in the article. It was little, like, it was my very first article. Mm-hmm. And it's not even a scholar that's, uh, that's in my university. So, you know, like, in the trans world, like, this, this idea of, like, of, like, like, peer review being double-blinded is completely fake um i can't i can't take myself outside of the work because well i'm i'm translating my experience and my and experiences in my community and that's what makes the strength of the work so i can't remove myself from it because else i'm weakening the work and also mm-hmm. i wouldn't want to because i mean that's what that's what's important like the whole point is we need to give voices to trans people mm-hmm. so why should i try to take distance from my work that's that would be incoherent mm-hmm. there would be an inconsistency and paradoxical given the stances that i've taken regarding voice and situated epistemology mm-hmm. It's just so fascinating. So I want to I want to deepen the conversation with that a little bit because, um, and I'll talk about the way that you interacted with my seminar this morning, which was fabulously <laughs> to do your talk and your engagement with the students to, uh, completely topless. Um, and I'm just wondering. I know you've done that once or twice in the past, um, but I think it, it, it maybe that my read was sort of building on everything you've just said. This notion that there, you know, the idea that we. Uh, women or or trans feminine individuals or sex workers or whatever people there's this typical famous old notion now that uh oftentimes femininity when read in different iterations is wrongly perceived as being constantly available and that it's the constant sexual availability of mm-hmm. the feminine or feminine adjacent that sort of um is disempowering and it's we need to emancipate ourselves from that availability and i just thought it was just so genius that you you made yourself available without being available, if that makes mm-hmm. sense at the same time. Yeah. 
Or if you could just tell me what was up with that, I could be completely yeah. wrong. I mean, I think that's interesting. It's it's really a central um, notion in um, in transfeminism, um, like for instance, um, in Julia Serrano in mm-hmm. Whipping Girl, uh, is essentially a, dis- a defense of femininity. Uh, it's essentially this idea that like there's like the goal is not to leave femininity behind of course it's also to that no one should be forced into being feminine so it is on one hand the idea that like it should be perfectly fine for women not to be feminine Mm -hmm. but it also should be that femininity is no longer devalued and also Mm -hmm. doesn't come with this kind of like inherent sexualization and i I mean we do see that with like a lot of transfeminine people where like it's conceived as first a mental illness to be transfeminine but also as specifically a sexual fetish Mm -hmm. because femininity is conceived in purely sexual term like so we have a society that can't make sense why anyone would want to be feminine because feminine is just making oneself into a sex object. You're just like, "Mm." but it's also not that. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's complete misunderstanding of like, uh, of like how we can see femininity. And I think there's a very interesting uh, work being done in like queer and trans spheres. And like, there's um, like all of this um, kind of like uh, a lot of, like, for instance, in art, I think really amazing stuff being done, like, by people like Star Star Child and stuff like that, where it's very, like, pastel, very, like, uh, like stereotypically feminine work, but also that speaks about, like, very serious topics in, in a very powerful manner mm. and can, and show shows the strength of softness in a way. And there's a lot, and there's been stuff that's been coming out about the strength of softness and stuff, like, recently, and I thought this is all, like, like absolutely fascinating uh, fascinating things and speaks to me a lot and so yeah like that was um, definitely part of how I, like my interaction with stuff and I do like to joke that um, <clears throat> I do like to come and joke when I give conferences I'm just like I'm just there to sit and look pretty <laughs> um, and part of that is to is to kind of like play with and 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 mess with the assumption of like um of femininity mm-hmm. and beauty being mm-hmm. opposite mm-hmm. to uh, strength and intelligence and mm-hmm. having something to say. Um, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm seeing myself as actively working against that and also working against uh, norms of respectability in the mm-hmm. field. And that's one of the big reasons why I take my top off. Mm-hmm. Um, just this idea that like, hey, like I can, I can be feminine. I can even be sexual. Doesn't mean that I, you know, that I'm not worth listening to and um, yeah. I don't have anything interesting to say. I um, also did it, you know, in context uh, this time was because I was talking about the 1982 uh, Quebec case, Engelsberger, that uh, was very politics of respectability mm-hmm. and the idea that, like, <clears throat> if you're, um, you're either trans or you're, uh, or you're a transvestite, and if you're a transvestite, you're a sex worker, mm-hmm. and this um, adequation between sex work and um, and being a transvestite. So the idea is like you're not really trans if you do if you're if you're sexualized, uh, and if you're if you can be understood in sexual terms, and like for instance, saying that like oh well, trans like trans people are not. Um, 
the expertise saying like, oh, trans people are not homosexual, but and with the implication that like uh, that like crossdressers who are sex workers are. Uh, so there's so there's this narrative, and and part of why I, um, my top was like to, to to kind of like actively resist and uh, and and make a point about mm-hmm. that narrative of like that that kind of dismisses anyone who's uh, who's in any way sexualized. Um, and I think you know it touches on a lot of stuff. And the the previous time I did it was in a feminist conference, and it was and I was giving a talk on how um, rigid academic norms, specifically in law, stifle trans creativity. Mm-hmm. But there was also a talk before that about how uh, the Canadian art magazine had censored the uh, cover um, where the person on the cover was. Um, an indigenous trans person and who had their breasts out and they uh, censored the cover so that it's covered by uh, by the person's hair and um i was f- like i was angry and frustrated about that because uh, like i mean it's it's literally art like it's an <laughs> art magazine and you can't even have like we're censoring naked. elon sheila these days <laughs> like but yeah blood. so oof, i'm just i was just i was just like frustrated with that and that like that's part of it but also part of it is just like because i wanna yeah 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 that's fantastic and i I, so i wanna i I would love to hear sort of what the reception has been in the past of that critical performative but also really deeply inhabiting an epistemological space like that what that Mm. the reaction has been sort of in general but also from feminists and sort of what how that sits it sits uneasily it seems to me with the move you know, this, whatever it is that we're in moment or something called Me Too or something. <laughs> sexuality, the place of sexuality in the public space and including in the professional space and including in the, the you know, the work environment space. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not we're not sure what to do with it. And it seems that we're either closeting it in some way, mm-hmm. name, namely female sexuality, mm-hmm. or we're calling it bad or dirty or unprofessional once again, or all of all of these things. Yeah. Or it seems to me that there's at least a really substantial risk of doing those things, and mm-hmm. that that risk is something we should be really worried about. And I know that you yeah. share some of those concerns. Yeah, I mean, I think that, for instance, I don't think it's an accident that we see uh, like uh, Fasta Sesta coming at the same time as as the Me Too movement, and even though uh, one is, like, very, very distinctively anti-feminist and one uh, and one is um, very much seen as feminist, and one of the things is that I don't... why I don't think that it's... that it's an accident is that we have to think about the mediation aspect of, um, of those movements, and we have to think about the fact that it's not Me Too movement as much as we might want to think that, is not just about women speaking up. It's also about the media and politicians listening and carrying those voices. Mm-hmm. And some of them do it for good reasons, but other ones do it because they think that um, they want a return to a more prude world. They want to des- desexualize uh, the world in a public space, and they're less interested in promoting consent, which is what Me Too seeks to do, and more interested in just not having and just like removing sex altogether. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a danger. And um, and I think we should be very careful to ensure that Me Too stays about consent. Mm-hmm. And um, and 
I mean, we have limited means of doing that in a sense that, like, ultimately, it's it's those conservative people that want to remove uh, sex sex altogether from public space and want to desexualize de the world that often are in power and are called upon to uh, put into tangible policy and put into uh, motion the the demands of Me Too and then there's a danger of perversion with that mm -hmm. and, uh, and and the problem of course is that these things don't aren't aren't the stuff that's happening with uh, with the big names that's the stuff that's happening on the ground with real with the like the real everyday people that don't have a place in the spotlight and honestly i'm ultimately i'm much less interested in me too in hollywood and me too mm -hmm. in uh, like the uh, comedy sector and stuff like that than me too as it plays out in you know everyday people's lives and one of my peers, one of my fears is that the way it's playing out is in a complete desexualization of uh, of, of the world, which is what we what got us to um, Tumblr removing uh, adult content, mm -hmm. which you know is hugely dangerous for uh, for queer trans people and for um, as well as for sex workers, and then uh, Fosta Sesta. Uh, it's the same uh, conservative. Uh, it's the same conservative push. So. So I think we need to have uh, uh, to keep the discussion going, and we need to bring that aspect into the discussion mm -hmm. to say that uh, to to really reiterate and keep on topic the fact that we're not trying to desexualize um, the world, but we're trying to really bring uh, a culture of consent and a culture mm -hmm. of sexual morality but not in the not in um in the the, the kind of conservative sense but in the right. like very like acting ethically and in a feminist manner kind of sense of the word right 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 and so i wonder that it seems to me that uh it seems to me then that the challenge is in part to be really fine-grained and careful about distinguishing between the different sorts of feminism that may or may not be operating mm -hmm. kind of in the public, but also the public, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, policy space right now, right? And so yeah. um, believe women, in other words, is, mm -hmm. is a rather contentless category or idea if we're not sort of populating it with which women should be believed under what circumstances in which spaces, mm -hmm. right? And so in other words... Uh, believe women alone invites us down this dangerous path where we might just very facilely assume that like any sexualization in the public space is necessarily oppressive or something mm -hmm. silly like this. And I know that that's something you thought about. And so I um, mean, particular because of the way in which uh, this notion of believe women um, is actually in tension with uh, other overlapping modes of emancipation, but also mm -hmm. oppression when it comes to maybe intersectionally dealing with um, issues that affect trans communities or racialized communities, et cetera. Mm -hmm. If you could just spend a moment talking about that, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah, I think there are like two kind of like big important aspect with like believe women uh, and the first one is like okay i believe women now what uh you know are we adopting a cursorial approach or are we committed to uh, this idea that like people can change and we can actually improve things so are we committed like how do we transform this movement where we've done this hugely important work of labeling behavior as problematic or unproblematic and how do we go from there to talking about what we do about it because that's an important discussion that we haven't been having 
enough, uh, which is, you know, I don't like I don't know that I that I want like to send people to jail for everything. Uh, I'm not like I'm an ab- prison abolitionist, so I think that you know prison is not. Uh, is not really helpful so how do we transform that into a transformative movement where we can you know where we can eradicate um, sexual harassment and sexual assault in a real manner instead of just thinking that prisons are going to do that Mm -hmm. for us which i don't think they're going to do so that's the first aspect and the second is we also need to talk about the the framing of believe women and with with the important grain of salt of well we've been hashing on this discussion in a very um white manner in a sense that um, we've been framing this a lot in terms of uh, the imaginary of like white man white uh, white woman but in reality the problem is that um, we we have very concrete examples of um, of like sexual assault and sexual harassment claims being weaponized against black men particularly and also against uh, against trans women and part of that is because uh, those are two groups that are inherently seen as um, uh, who are like typed as uh, as aggressors uh, and you know I was thinking in terms of uh, for instance some cases that I've discussed in my forthcoming uh, Dalhousie Law Journal paper which is called Gender Fucking Non-Disclosure mm-hmm. where I talk about um, cases where um, trans people were uh, charged with sexual assault for not disclosing the fact that they were trans, and um, you know, in those cases, we see that um, that believe women kind of falls apart because we've had cases where there were pressure from the family to claim that they didn't know that a person was trans, and those aren't uh, those aren't claims that that were making the air and doubts that were making the hair. Like we have uh, we have in certain cases very. Uh, like converging evidence that gives us reason to doubt um what like that the person didn't know and in one in one of the cases in the Hanal Kabi's case in Israel one of the complainants actually came to court and told the court uh, in a letter like I lied about it I was afraid of mm-hmm. discrimination would happen to me if my mom knew that I had slept with someone who was a sign female at birth uh, was uh, was afraid of uh, being uh, like being seen as a lesbian this person now identifies as a lesbian which also has intersection because this is a trans man so like saying now she's a lesbian is kind of like icky <laughs> but 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 we see that you know we see a, a tangible case of like where uh, where like uh, believing women kind of breaks down and that's when uh, the accusation is actually flows uh, in the direction of um, of you know a social script that's already assumed of mm-hmm. like trans women being uh, being perverts and being creeps mm-hmm. and stuff like that and that's where, where we see in the uh, the bathroom uh, like the bathroom bill cases which are essentially trying to kick trans people out of public spaces or this assumption that inherently trans, uh, trans women are aggressors. And it reminds me also of a couple um, uh, some time ago where there was a um, trans person on uh, Twitter that was uh, being accused of like sexual assault and you know that in and of itself is not necessarily something that, uh, that is surprising. Like there are awful trans people like that's not being trans does not exempt you from being uh, for being violent or for a person or for committing sexual assault but we did notice in that case that uh, the accusation were like just um, like had like huge factual holes like 
a lot of the people were like like just created accounts and also a lot of people were like very uh like we knew that the people like never lived anywhere in the same area the stories made absolutely like they just didn't uh, cohere with uh, with known establishable facts and uh we and then you know it was all eventually like there was some tracing back to um to like uh, anti-trans groups and stuff like that so so there's so so there's always this kind of like grain of salt of like yeah i like i do think that in general believe women is a good policy but it doesn't mean we should stop questioning like how it intersects with other modes of oppression because you know yes um Sexual harassment, sexual assault are huge problems, but so are transmisogyny, mm-hmm. so are racism. Mm-hmm. And we, and when we, um, and if we focus solely on, uh, on believe women, then we can forget about those other, um, the other forms of oppression. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, that can be, that can be very dangerous. So it's not, it, it's not, it's a discussion that we still need to have. It's a very complicated one because, you know, uh, it's a very complicated situation because at the end of the day, there are trans people who do, uh, who do bad things. And, you know, I've had a uh, struggle with that a bit because like, for instance, I've, um, I've um, experienced like some time ago uh, sexual violence and I've like struggled and like, for instance, and for a long time, like when I actually, like came out about it and talked about it. I uh, didn't want, for instance, to say that the person was a trans person precisely because mm-hmm. it coheres with these uh, decisions of, um, of like trans people as perpetrators, and um, and especially since the person did uh, did do important like accountability work afterwards mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I'm also um, kind of like happy of how it played out, even though it still hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know we see that we see that play out like those very like complex complex dynamics we see them play out in our uh, in our lives in our community lives and those are very um very difficult and complicated topics and i think like we're doing ourselves a disservice by like by like treating them too in a too unnuanced mm-hmm. manner which isn't to say that we should retire the idea of believe women i still uh, it's still an idea that i uh, that i stick to and and that i um, that i fully support i just think we should also be careful about the way we deploy that claim mm-hmm. and the um the narratives that we deploy around it because you know it's like it's never in a vacuum we say that but we say that in a context and we say other stuff around it and we just need to be careful about what the other stuff about Mm -hmm. it that we say so that it's correctly framed in a more nuanced manner and doesn't become purely dogma Mm -hmm. wonderful all right thank you florence so much for being with us here today and i hope we get to chat again in the not too distant future pleasure thanks for inviting me Writing. Last night I had planned to go out to a party, but then felt instead like just boarding the subway and riding and riding with my body quiet and deep in a book, but it's hard to find quite the resolve to do that, so I went to the party and did what I could to contain all that riding inside me. Daniel Karazic is an artist and activist based in Toronto. They are the author of five books, including a poetry collection, three volumes of plays, and most recently a compilation of short stories titled Faithful and Other Stories with Guernica. 
Daniel has won the CBC Short Story Prize as well as the Toronto Arts Foundation Emerging Artist Award. They are active in the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign as well as in the prison abolition movement. In this interview, Daniel and I discuss how living and enacting what we might understand as gender trouble can help us to imagine new institutions and ways of being in a world that is deeply divided and deeply imperiled. This is a wide-ranging interview that covers Welbeck, queer science fiction, working with sex offenders, and emancipatory justice projects. Here's my interview with Daniel Karazic. So first of all, Daniel, thanks so much for being here. It's always a great pleasure to spend time with you. To start with, could you tell us just a bit about yourself and your work here in Toronto? Both the activist work that I've been doing, and like, I guess just to kind of name some of that, like I've been pretty active in the, 50, the Fight for 15 and Fairness movement, which is sort of polarizing around um, minimum wage politics and so related related to the labor demands. Um, a lot of it with a pretty sort of class-based or sort of socialist, um, intersectionally socialist analysis. Um it's a movement driven mostly by women, mostly by women of color. Uh, and then I've been doing a lot of sort of uh, some research and writing on transformative restorative justice frameworks, prison abolition stuff. And then I'm, I work with some people coming out of the prison system uh, through the Mennonites, uh, the Mennonites Church Committee. Um, on, so cool. <laughs> yeah, on sort of like reintegration work and, and yeah. those sorts of things. And so okay. I think like, in the, and then I'm, you know, posting uh, like, you know, lots of uh, weird trans stuff on the internet or like, you know, so, like a lot of selfies. But yeah. so, like, I mean, I, I think the... Cute uh, might delete. What's that? Cute might delete. Cute might delete. Yeah, I don't tend to delete them, but I still reserve, I reserve the, I reserve the, the, I guess the right, the latitude to do that. But, but I think that, you know, like the common denominator for me is like, um, and, and so, yeah, so there's that. And then I... Um, and then I'm writing, I'm, I'm working on different kinds of sort of literary, doing different kinds of literary writing and working on a book of, of mostly, mostly poetry and, and sort of like both verse and some prose forms, um, some new performance uh, writing, one piece that I, for me to perform myself that's kind of, sort of on the border between like performance uh, art and, and drama and then another that's sort of a more traditional play. And I'm like, I'm trying to, to figure out... Um, I'm, I'm trying to teach myself how to like re- recover some interests in the sort of skills that I was developing when I was like 13 and teach myself how to write like queer science fiction, um, sort of queer, queer and trans, like socialist science fiction, uh, which again, sort of like resonates with things that I was like obsessed with when I was like 10 or 12 or 13. Really? And then I, I, I kind of like told myself I had to grow out of it and I, okay. I had to like learn how to, you know, appreciate and produce like literary fiction, you know, with all this sort of, uh, yeah, various sort of uh, implications of, you know, professionalizing and some class implications mm-hmm. that are loaded there, um, that are in there. So anyway, so I'm trying to do all of this at once. And I think that the the common denominator is um, like projects of, like, of speculation, speculative projects about how the world could be transformed in fairly fundamental ways that would, you know... Uh, open up new possibilities for, for ways mm-hmm. that people could live together for sort of individual flourishing. Um, so yeah, so I, I guess I, I see, um, 
queerness and transness and other sorts of non-normative ways of being sort of socially located uh, sexually or in terms of gender as part of part of that broader project of like well you know how do we like how do we sort of imagine a world whose givens are, are sort of like radically less violent and um, less sort of informed by by domination sort of all like all up and down the, mm-hmm. the chain and yeah you know and so like I think one of the things I was saying, saying to you before like that I find sort of useful theoretically about you know like thinking about transness and being trans in public or being non-binary in public is is that it involves a kind of denaturalization of mm-hmm. some really kind of foundational, you know, kind of Western civilizational givens that mm-hmm. it's, it's this sort of denaturalization of um, a bunch of, yeah, like really sort of, you know, I mean, in Freudian terms, like cathected, like these are like intensely invested, emotionally invested assumptions about how people should be uh, with each other um, that, you know, like sort of hetero heteronormativity, you know, kind of carries and, uh, and all of this, and so it creates maybe ideally, you know, like a space where other kinds of of institutions of domination that have been naturalized can also be uh, questioned and can also be sort of, um, you know, yeah, like de denaturalized and um, yeah. So, uh, which to me lends itself like very, very sort of closely, or not to say naturally, to uh, to sort of literary projects of of speculative fiction, science fiction, which is like certainly not a new idea. Um, I've been reading a bunch of uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, who's really, really great thinker, um, queer thinker of color in the States, who who's uh, co-edited a, um, an anthology of uh, like leftist science fiction and fantasy called Octavia's Brood, Octavia Butler herself, um, as a kind of icon um, uh, along those lines. So I'm, I'm like kind of making little kind of baby steps into a really sort of rich and deep uh, tradition, mm-hmm. um, 20th century tradition at the very least, you know, of like kind of imaginative, speculative, emancipatory um, literary writing that again is like for me a kind of like return to, to sort of like a, a kind of child, childlike or adolescent uh, mm-hmm. set of impulses that I had. But it's like one, one maybe kind of in- interesting uh, feature of that return is that I'm kind of, it's a kind of rebounding off of um, some of, so I, uh, some of the, the thinking I was doing a couple years ago doing my master's, I, I, I moved to Chicago for a while to do a, a master's in um, basically it was pretty hybrid, but it was basically sort of in, uh, political theory and literature. And my, my thesis work was on Michel Houellebecq, the mm-hmm. French reactionary that he calls himself. He, he refuses the term reactionary, but calls himself conservative novelist. Um, but you know, I mean, on, in some important ways, Michel Houellebecq is writing science fiction. He's writing fantasies at the very least. He's writing speculative fiction, uh-huh. um, in maybe all the novels, except, except for the first one, um, which is, you know, the first one is called Whatever in English, and in French it was Extension de la Domaine de la Lutte, um, you know, which is this sort of... Uh, as very a, different title. Very different title, <laughs> yeah. which is, in the French one is much more revealing, uh-huh. Extension of the Domain of the Struggle or the yeah. Fight, you know, which is sort of a pretty good... Um, a pretty good sort of, you know, kind of emblem of this whole sort of project, which is um, this sort of uh, quite reactionary critique, uh, or at least conservative critique, of um, the ways that, of the, the neoliberalization of everything, yeah. of the ways that sort of May 68 and the sort of revolutionary energies in May 68 failed, 
um, and we're completely absorbed by the market. Uh, and that um, what's happened since has been this sort of complete capitulation to to neoliberal neoliberal forces. Um, that involves, crucially for him, the neoliberalization of sex uh, mm-hmm. and of desire mm-hmm. um, and this sort of like absolute, you know, kind of like free marketization of, of desire as maybe, you know, you know, you've read, you've read his stuff. Um, I actually haven't. So I'm not, oh, okay. I, I need to, and I know that everyone is, ta- I, it's on my fucking list. Yeah. He's, <laughs> but, so, but this is genius. So keep going. Well, he's, yeah. he's really, really great. I mean, and he's, he's like great. And, and also like awful. Like he's, yeah. he's like yeah. very difficult to stomach and certainly. Um, is it all serious? Uh, I mean, no, it, it's I, like, from an authentic sort of space. I mean, in your opinion, where I, it's hard to say. Right. I mean, he's, I think one of these people whose like artworks are more interesting than his like polemics per se. Like he's, right. you know, he, I think published some like, op, pardon me, some like op-ed in the, um, in the New York Times uh, a couple years ago about like immigration or something that was just like sort of frankly, like kind of awful and reactionary and, yeah. and like un, 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 uninterestingly so like it wasn't even like theoretically particularly right. uh interesting right. and i mean i find uh, when uh when daddy putin publishes things in the new york times are usually much more interesting <laughs> if you've ever read any of his stuff but not to interject no, go ahead he writes um he's written a couple of uh uh like he's actually was trained as an international lawyer uh-huh. and so he was writing uh what I mean, were taken as crazy uh, conservative reactions, like um, when he, you know, they went into to Ukraine and had their big free for all, and and actually was able to come back with like genius international law arguments, sort of from the periphery in support of what he was doing, and oh, so wow. it just sort of made, immediately made me think of like, yeah, it'd be interesting that Wilbuck wasn't as as like astute in his ability <laughs> to maneuver, well, but but anyway, no, he's also not an artist, so that was yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, there's, I guess there's there's something that happens like in the translation of i mean i guess like who elbeck's like own yeah and he also famously doesn't speak english right and refuses to is that so i, don't, I think I so don't I, th- I thought so yeah. yeah but anyway go ahead um yeah. but he's like you know he, the sort of translation of his own sort of like trauma and rage and stuff right. into you know fictive writing into into art is like uh elevates it in, in ways that are interesting to me like he you know his sort of somehow his, his characterizations maybe there is like an access of irony or ambivalence that makes it a little bit harder to sort of um, to dismiss or something. Um, right. Although his work is also like clearly, clearly, uh, you know, at many moments like racist and sexist and and like, uh-huh. um, you know, in yeah, like just sort of quite unapologetic ways. Um, but so I guess what what made what it made me think like kind of engaging with this sort of whole body of work and and reading him against some of the sort of like. Freudian Marxists of the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. who were sort of theorizing the forms of like sexual liberation that then, you know, he, who Welbeck picks up and says, oh no, this all failed. It, what was interesting to me was that I, th- I, th- I thought, okay, so he's, he's doing this sort of like speculative project and the conclusions that he's drawing are all sort of serving, um, you know, basically, ser- you know, more or less serving the sort of uh, reactionary framework that he's arrived at in advance. Um, but there is something, there is a kind of political imagination here, a kind of like attempt to sort of like concretely rearrange or just like extrapolate from tendencies that are sort of, you know, that exist now in the world 
that I find very exciting, even when it's drawing really sort of, you know, like nihilistic mm-hmm. um, conclusions, even when it's sort of t- like taking a certain kind of materialism and then, you know, drawing the, the sort of the bleakest possible conclusions. Because like, you know, Welbeck is, is I, I think, what or he's been described anyways, with the, you know, like they talk about in France, like a rouge brun. He's mm-hmm. like sort of a, um, he's like a lapsed, he's like a lapsed communist. He was, he was sort of like, you know, in with, certain sort of like revolutionary socialist uh kind of intellectual circles and then his novel the elementary particles the english translation um came out and made him a celebrity there and he was i, I think i'm getting the chronology of this right that he, and he was basically kind of repudiated by or he was like you know kind of rena- uh, renounced by like his um political comrades and kind of rightly so because his politics were not that i mean his politics like as expressed through his art are like certainly not mistakable for like um, you know, a sort of uh, socialist or even sort of emancipatory. Um, you know, they're they're like horror stories. Like his first mm-hmm. his first um, published work was a, a monograph on H.P. Lovecraft, right? Like, and there's there is something that's like, you know, kind of consonant with with a kind of Lovecraftian racist reactionary mm-hmm. project in in his work. But anyway, but it's like but just this sort of access of uh, or this uh, you know kind of uh, recourse to like you know, political imagination, speculation as a, a kind of like way of, of thinking about possible futures and like sort yes. of, you know, better, different futures, you know, that I, I thought needn't be limited to um, the kind of dark uses uh, to which he puts that. Like I, I thought, you know, there's something, the, the ways that sexuality and that this sort of like grim, you know, kind of orthodox Freudian sort of read of sexuality um, exists in his work um, you know, which is which is to say that um, no matter how what what degree of equality is reached, or sort of you know, sort of however however well society is sort of organized in most terms, um, desire is just so combustible. You know, the sort right. of like sexual competition and sexual sort of like restlessness of different sorts will just kind of like you know that that is the sort of perversity in the even be sort of you know in the utopia or in this sort of you know um, the, the the fly in the ointment or whatever. Um, um, conservative, nihilistic, um, almost Christian, like sort of in many ways, like, like, you know, Christian adjacent or, or crypto Christian critique of sexuality, uh, that is at the center of Welbeck's sort of like, you know, kind of conservative, uh, speculative fictions, um, and so one of the impulses I had, uh, you know, working with, with his, his writing as, you know, sort of in, in that kind of scholarly context, but then also thinking about, you know, my own literary writing and thinking, well, if I return to writing fiction, which I, it wasn't clear to me that I wouldn't necessarily even do, uh, like, are, what are the elements of this kind of, um, you know, like scholarly work I'm doing now that might inform my own projects and mm-hmm. one of it one one of those impulses was just like um if you replace the sort of christian conservative uh reading of sexuality um for the orthodox freudian reading of sexuality in Welbeck's work with um a a queer trans one that uh among other things like um is you know sort of finds uh potential for pleasure in you know and and for sort of like sexual um delight of different kinds like in in many different sorts of bodies it doesn't have the kind of like proto-fascist 
um, emphasis on like certain forms of beauty, like sort of he- like, you know, kind of normative, like gender normative, heterosexist sort of beauty that is like very much a part of like Welbeck's vision. Like, you know, then in fact, a lot of the sort of cynicism uh, that, that marks like, like a, a kind of reactionary speculative writer like Welbeck's universe um, it loses some of its basis, loses some of its ground, right? Because there's just a lot more room for like natural human diversity and variation um, in, you know, especially it's like specifically sort of like natural human diversity and variation in terms of desire um, to, to find satisfaction um, and to find satisfaction in ways that are not at the expense of, you know, the weak or the ugly or whatever else, you know, like right. that aren't at the expense of, um, those who can't conform or don't want to conform or whatever to um, a sort of hyper hierarchical um, heterosexist, you know, cis heterosexist like proto fascist kind of hierarchy of values um, or order of values. So I think you know that's a, a big messy way of saying that. Uh, I, I guess my my interest in writing sort of speculative fiction or speculative drama or even speculative poetry on some level um you know uh and and sort of science fiction or fantastical sort of like you know modalities of all those things uh comes out of like a prior speculation on my part as to like um or speculative question about like is this other form like does this sort of does this form um hold the kinds of possibilities that I want it to, right? Like, yeah. like you know, is is there, there a chance, or is there, a, is there like a, a possibility uh, that something called, or something we might call like socialist, you know, like, or fully automated uh, luxury gay space communist <laughs> science fiction or whatever, um, or, you know, science fiction plays, or um, could actually like help to... Uh, you know, articulate and lend some energy to, um, and be a source of a site of pleasure in, uh, a real material, material, like, um, concrete politics. Um, and so, you know, uh, yeah, like, like how far can I or one go in refusing, um, a sort of nihilist centralism uh, in in sort of approaching um, what art is to mean and what you know my art is to mean and, and that sort of thing. So, and again, I mean, there are lots of people who have been thinking about uh, these questions for far longer than I have, and I, I feel like I'm I'm just kind of maybe asking some very elementary questions about um, about genre and and like you know socialist politics. Uh, because you know, like again, these questions are are yeah, like kind of new to me, and well, like in, in these particular articulations, they're sort of new to me. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that's that's what I've been spending a lot of time thinking about recently, and also like thinking about that as um, one answer to the question of how do I bring my uh, activist or organizing uh, work. Uh, together with the literary work, the artwork, uh, however you want to kind of categorize that, that I was spending most of my time engaged in over the past, you know, decade or so. Um, yeah, like, what are the sort of like, uh, what are the overlaps there? And ultimately, like, how can I, how can I be useful? Like, how can, I, how can I like bring my own, how can I make what gives me pleasure, uh, you know, uh, useful? 
um, in ways that are not like purely solipsistic or, you know, yeah. or sort of self-absorbed, even though like there's a, I think a place for a certain amount of sort of, you know, self-absorption. Well, absolutely. But, I mean, what's yeah. more self-absorbed than neoliberalism, right? But, <laughs> right. But, yeah. I mean, but, not, but not wanting to, you know, not wanting to play, no, exactly, play into that. No, exactly. But if they can like, do it, we can do it, you know? And I think so. I mean, I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so, but that's, I mean, just concretely, like, and there might not be an answer to this and sure. it may be a bad question, but I'm wondering, like, so if you take, for example, the work that you're doing, either that with pr- prison abolition or stemming out of that with offenders who are reintegrating into society or, or that kind of a thing. I mean, it's not obvious, I think, to people how you'd marry, how one would marry those two projects, right? So a project that's like deeply invested in sexual, but also other desire and the way and the ambivalence of desire and that, that it's political potential and, yeah. and, and the project that's really invested in restorative modes of justice in society. And so if you could just speak a bit, bit about sure. that, I'd be fascinated. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think there's a lot of, I see like, like, uh, a lot of inter interconnection there. I mean, I, I think most sort of obviously for me in terms of like the, I think the, the problem that unites those problems or issues is how, how does a society treat those who are marked as, you know, uh, problematically other or, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's like, there's such a, a history of, uh, like the most the most extraordinary uh, demonization, as you know, like codified in law of queer and trans and otherwise sexually non-conforming yeah. people. I mean, like what was the language that was used to describe uh, gay folks in Canada up until like what, like the sixties or something? Like dangerous sexual psychopaths and stuff. Like these were like like yeah. terms that were yeah. that were codified in law and that were made the basis of the most you know like violent sort of uh, carceral. Right policies so i mean even though there is like there's been a lot of you know movement around that sort of language and policy um in canada i mean you know there's still like the some of the the thinking and the kind of the the cultural bases um for that sort of policy i don't feel has you know have been sort of eradicated i mean there's still i think a a huge degree of like kind of fear and othering of, of those who who are sort of obviously outside of a sort of, you know, cis heteronormative, yeah. uh, framework. And so, and also, like, you know, uh, so there, first of all, there is just like literally the incarceration of queer and trans people through, you know, like, especially sort of marginalized, uh, more marginalized than other uh, queer and trans people, like, you know, like trans, uh, trans women of color, you know, trans women of color who are sex workers. Like yeah. these are highly, highly over, I mean, not that anybody should be incarcerated, but like yeah. over incarcerated, over criminalized, yeah. hyper criminalized. Yeah population so there's just like literal overlap in those those sort of categories um but there's also i think more broadly the sense that like i mean so many people who are in prison um you know i mean by all appearances but by any sort of like empirical measure don't pose uh, a clear and present ongoing danger to society some of them may pose a clear and present ongoing danger to property of certain forms maybe um but a lot of that as a problem could be can be addressed Mm -hmm. um you know i i submit and you know sort of like the prison abolition and other movements uh you know would, would suggest by structural reforms of other kinds that are not about punishment so you know in terms of like uh giving people access to the things yeah. they might otherwise be inclined yeah. to uh engage in criminalized behaviors for so just th- this question of like how do we deal with um 
the other of whom we are afraid. I think yeah. that like this question of, of like demonization and fear is something that unites people across those sorts of categories and the ways that sort of like, uh, you know, like kind of white middle-class society kind of res- straight, you know, responds to, um, yeah, like the, yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I have to put it in at all. But I, and it's a little bit, I mean, you know me, whatever, I'll ask something edgy and weird, but this is supposedly edgy and weird in any event. But the, have you worked with, and I say this because I've been approached recently by um, people doing similar work to you in, in terms of um, uh, with offenders um, and, and some of those offenders who are, I mean, the most radicalized in terms of the most the most radicalized othering um, of of uh, demographically of offenders might be the child abuser, right? Yeah. And, and I'm just wondering if and this might I know this is a little bit coming out of nowhere and let me try and make sense of this question, but you know what I'm trying to say here, like how if we're if we're gonna if we're gonna take this logic and empathetic and political impulse, which I'm more than fully on board with that you're articulating. How do we make that work in sort of the most othered spaces, right? which may include, you know, individuals who are engaging clearly in antisocial behavior that we're not wanting to, you know, sanction anyway, but, but, but antisocial behavior that is rooted in, you know, in sexual desire as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so... If that's too weird, don't. No, it's not too weird. I, so, I mean, I don't know if you... I've been thinking about it recently and I, I've yeah, just yeah. left to, the benefit of your thoughts on it. Sure. So, I don't, I don't know if you know this or I've told you this on another occasion, but, like, that is uh, more or less the demographic that the, the program that I volunteer in uh, works with. So, it's like, it's a program... Uh, run by the Mennonites Central Committee. It's it's run uh, it certainly exists across Canada. I'm not sure if it, I think I think there are program, the, uh, instances of it elsewhere in the world, but they're called circles of support and accountability. And so, yeah, so basically a bunch of volunteers, um, often from very different backgrounds. I mean, you know, like I'm on I volunteer with alongside people who have social work backgrounds. Um, you know, other other sorts of who often come from like sort of uh, religious. Uh, backgrounds of different sorts um, to support and, uh, in theory, like hold accountable. I mean, uh, the, w- the needs of the individuals who kind of really differ. Um, people who who are yeah, who sort of criminalized, uh, uh, whose offenses are are sex offenses. So mm-hmm. and yeah, so in both of the choosing my words sort of carefully because mm-hmm. it's like uh, there's like confidentiality issues, but it's sure. like I think. Yeah, I think it's safe to say, like, so both, you know, the people I work with in that capacity have offenses of the kind you're describing. And I mean, I was I was attracted to that because I was sort of like, yeah, like I talk a big game about, you know, sort of transformative justice and and prison abolition. And like, how do I feel? I mean, some of it was just, you know, it's a kind of personal project. Like for Mm -hmm. me, like, how do I feel when confronted with like sort of like the the hardest or you know the, one of the hardest kinds of you know case cases and uh, like and what is like what are the limits of this yeah. sort of yeah. thinking and so i mean in the program that i volunteer on is dedicated to uh you know um 
making it making it be the case that there will be no more uh, no more victims, no more and like no more sort of uh, you know offenses and um, and also keeping people out of out of the system, out of the prison system. So it's in some ways connected to it's, it gets funding from the federal government. Um, the staff there work with parole officers and this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is like an abolitionist impulse insofar as, you know, it's trying to make it unnecessary for those state structures of violence right. to to be activated um, in those cases. And so that, that like COSA, like those programs have a very high, uh, you know, there's been a lot of research about them. They're, they've been very good at preventing uh, recidivism, reoffending, and... Um, you know, so in many ways, that model is, I think, quite encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, the people who are showing up in that program are, to some extent, self-selecting. I mean, one thing that I've often wondered and one, you know, sort of something I've struggled with is like, well, you know, sure, I work with like two guys who are very committed to staying on a kind of uh, a good road and like not, you know, not doing harm. And, uh, and that's, if I were to kind of just extrapolate from that, I would feel like very kind of heartened, but I have no way of knowing if they're representative of the broader population of people who commit offenses of that sort. Um, and, and I do think, you know, there's like, there are also people who are interested in taking uh, whatever degree of, I mean, well, like a high degree of responsibility uh, for, for those sorts of offenses. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm well aware that that's not, that doesn't characterize, you know, everybody who, who has done uh, that kind of grievous harm. Um, and so I think there is, yeah, there, there's like, like an open question there. You know, I do think that there's probably like some quantum, some sort of, you know, like minimal amount of like human perversity and sort of, you know, like yeah. like aggressive human behavior that, you know, it will, can, cannot be sort of, uh, you know, kind of, like eliminated um, and that, that, you know, probably w- does require some form of, you know, coercive agency to kind of like to, mm-hmm. to manage. Um, but I, I believe very strongly that that level of, you know, of perverse behavior, of harmful behavior that cannot be managed yeah. otherwise is just so much va- vastly yeah. lower than, um, than, the 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 kind of institutions the the institutions of punishment and, and sort of state punishment that exist um, would have you believe and you know yeah. that like yeah. Um, so yeah I mean I do think I do think that that trying to figure out you know like how to sort of like navigate the, like the, those like the most intractable sorts of like cases or problems where sort of policy even like the most utopian policy prescription seems to kind of fall short is really important and also is something that art can do you know it's like it's it's also like just to kind of maybe bring that back around like that you know into that gap where you think like you know i you i can't imagine even with the most sort of like um generous kind of you know speculation about how human nature what we think of as human nature could be reformed or changed by better institutions like this sort of unbridgeable gap of you know sort of like you know, radical ill will or something, right? Like sort of, you know, like malignant narcissism that just like will not uh, acknowledge itself or whatever, right? I do think that there is a role or there can be a role for uh, art to kind of enter into that gap and poke around and yeah. and sort of say, well, then what does that, you know, what does that suggest? Like, how do we, how do we, how should we think about this in a way that doesn't just throw us back into a kind of like, yeah. um, you know, sort of tragic realism or some sort of like Christian realism that just that, that then gets used to like sort of, you know, to, to do apologetics for all kinds of unnecessary violence. 
Would you read one of your poems? Sure. Micro things. They are really great. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll read base, what these are. Uh, these are, so I'm working on a, as I, as I think I mentioned, I'm working on this uh, poetry manuscript, uh, but these are sort of little like, like B-sides. These are like little um, tiny, uh, some, some prose, some verse um, fragments that I uh, had been sort of putting up on my Facebook um, just because I wanted to. And then uh, you know, because I've done that, I can't really sort of send them to magazines, even if I, I mean, I'm not sure if I would even want to do that. So I just like, uh, turned my little web personal website, which I'd, I'd used to do a kind of like, uh, art criticism and punditry that I'm deeply uninterested in doing now. Um, and, uh, and replaced all of those blog posts and whatever, mm-hmm. those that remained. Actually, I'd, I think I'd replaced the art criticism already with like sort of little like polemical pieces about socialism. So I replaced the polemical pieces about socialism with these little poemlets because I felt like that was more what I wanted to be putting out in the world in that space. So, um, yeah, so the the one you want me to read about masculinity is, is literally just this. It's called Index, and it, it's, it goes... Cis straight masculinity is less an index of desire and identity than it is a set of catastrophically self-defeating strategies for staving off the overwhelming sadness. You know, when I write these little things now, I just think like there are so many, like there's like a handful of like extraordinary tweeters who I feel like just produce tweet size, unbelievably insightful content like this just every day on the toilet. So I am, I'm like humbled by the poet Ann Boyer's Twitter is, yeah. is so is so extraordinary. And there's there's a person in Toronto who tweets as a Fang Millie or twi- Pang Millie. I think they're, they're they're like their user their ad is different from their name, but it also is just like the most incredible Twitter poet. And then also um, Hannah Black, the artist in, in New York, who tweets as Nan Pansky is really great. Anyway, I'm just promoting like Twitter. No, These great. Are, they're not like I mean I guess of the three, like Ann Boyer is probably the only like self. Self ID'd uh, poet, but they're all yeah. Anyway, so this this uh, other one you asked me to read is called uh, Taste. It's also just like it's a little thing. It says, "What kind of art do I like? Oh, you know, the kind that makes you want to die, but also behold it with quiet rapture repeatedly, which requires continued living, a dialectic." Thank you so much, Daniel Karasik. Thanks a lot, Heidi. Yeah. Yeah.